All right, guys, welcome to this uh, special edition feature podcast on the Inside Dirt Network. Um, today is going to be Industry Insight, and it's going to be with Mark Jones of Mark Jones Photography. Um, for those guys that, that you, of you, sorry, that don't know about Mark Jones, um, he pretty much is one of the, the premier photographers in Australia, motocross and supercross. He's a guy I go way back with. We've got some funny stories in this podcast that you're going to hear. Um, and, and Jonesy offers some really valuable insight into the business side of the media world with, with the industry and sort of how he got established and got, got where he is now. So I just want to say this podcast goes a little bit longer than I thought it would. We nearly did two hours. There's a lot of us talking uh, old memories and just having fun with it. Um, and there's a lot of, a lot of valuable insight in there too. So, um, if you're time poor, sort of the beginning is Jonesy's story about an hour and a half in, we really start dissecting the industry and, and how the, the media game works. And we really get into that side of it. So if you're time poor, listen to the intro, chop it up, go straight to like the hour 30 mark. You can hear the industry chit chat and get what you want out of it. If you're driving, if you just like listening to us talk and have a good time, then listen to the whole podcast because it's pretty funny and we talk about some cool stuff when we were in the States together, you know, when Jonesy was training with me in the gym and I was coaching him back in the day and he was crashing and getting hurt all the time. But um, a lot of good stuff in here. So thanks for listening. Like I said, the coronavirus deal, we're just putting out content. I don't really have a show plan right now. Even the sponsor shows that we have where people are backing them. Um, but the event coverage, that's all kind of, oh, I don't even know where it's going to be. Um, we're waiting for word on when the series is going to kick back in. So for now, we're just calling this one Industry Insight. Thanks for listening. Please comment, please share, please subscribe, get it out there. Um, I appreciate it. And with that being said, here is today's Industry Insight interview with Mark Jones. All right, everyone, welcome to another um, coronavirus lockdown podcast interview. Like I said, um, you know, trying to keep the content coming your way. And surprisingly, a lot of people were lined up to do pods with, not surprisingly, still haven't really found the time to do that much of them. Um, you'd think being locked down at home, working from the home office, not going to the track, um, you'd find heaps of time. But uh, some guys are still working, some guys are still running their programs. Um, and working from home isn't always cracked up to be when you got um, a young family because, man, it's really tough to get stuff done. But luckily, my uh, little dude is in bed now, so the home office that I've got set up is safe. And um, we're going to get into this episode now on the Inside Dirt Network with um, what I'm calling here an industry insight. We're going to chat to my good friend, Mark Jones, um, also known as Donkey Kong, but we'll get to that nickname a bit later. Um, for those of you that don't know Mark Jones... He is Mark Jones Photography on Instagram. Jonesy, in my opinion, um, hands down one of the best, uh, honestly, motocross, supercross photographers in in the world. And I, I do mean that. That's not just because me and him are boys and we go way back. Um, he has a lot of talent and he's, he's, he's done it the hard way. He's made his way through the industry and, and he's at the point now where he's probably one of the um, more established photographers for the teams, the industry, the series, um, in the country uh, and he's had a lot of stuff right internationally so um with that being said let's get the man on the phone right now mark jones how we doing mate well thanks mate how you going yourself yeah all good man all good so um thanks for coming on um and uh, yeah i reached out last week and i was like jonesy let's um you know we normally get on the phone and talk some uh, talk some smack anyway so we might as well record it and um tell your story you know yeah that's it there's plenty to plenty to hear plenty for people to probably be interested in you know but- you don't really hear about this side of the, the industry much, but there's definitely plenty of people out there that do want to get into this side of the industry and 
maybe don't know how to make it or don't know why they're making it. So, and that's right. Uh, shed a bit of light on it. Yeah, for sure. And and you, I'd say you transitioned from the almost pre-social media era, like you just caught that initial wave, I guess you'd say, and now you're in the era where it's completely social media orientated and dominated. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the landscape has changed a lot. And, and you know, we saw a lot of um, the more established, I guess, elder guys in the sport. I, I guess, I, I think it squeezed out is the wrong word, but like the business model changed like drastically. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So that's something we can definitely talk about. But um, before we get into it, uh, what's been going on? Because um, obviously, photography is one side of your life. Just, uh, I guess, give everyone the rundown on what, what Mike Jones gets up to in an average week. Yeah, well, uh, there's a few ways to to make money. And unfortunately, in the motocross industry, it's not something that you can really do as a full-time career as a photographer. Within reason, there's obviously guys out there in the states that have that that clientele that that pays the big bucks. But unfortunately, in the industry in Australia, we we haven't reached that stage yet. And especially with the way the economy is going, the way bike sales are going, it's. I don't know if we ever did. We ever get there? I don't know if we did. I don't know. A lot of photographers would supplement with mainstream clientele whatever the shoots they were doing were like very rarely was there a, a full-time moto guy i might be wrong no not not in australia i mean you you got guys like like jeff crow but obviously they're established photographers who who didn't really see motocross as a niche i mean someone like himself established himself outside of the motocross industry and was brought into it and really set a standard back in the day as to to what photography needed to be and where it needed to be at in the industry. So there's guys like him that obviously took it on as a full-time profession, but that wasn't within the industry-specific. Um, yeah, Crow, I mean, and Crow's story is, um, Jeff Crow, that is, his story is crazy. Like, you hear, yeah. um, you know, the, the things he achieved with, with like, I guess you'd call it the, the photography agency that he had um, yep. back in the day with yep. all the Olympic contracts and when it was yep. film and the magazines and I want to get Crowy on and um, cause he's, he's a gnarly businessman. Like he's doing that brewery thing now. Right. Um, yep. Yep. But yeah, he, he's a fun guy to party with too. He's wild. <laughs> yeah. He, he has some stories to tell. That's for sure. And you know, just, I, I look back to him and when I was trying to establish myself in the industry and I didn't, I felt at that time, like every young kid does, like they're doing everything they can. And then, you know, it just hit me like I compared my quality of work to the quality of work that he was putting out. And, you know, you just think, you know, no one's looking at you. Everyone just, everyone just looks at him and thinks he's, he's great. But then you sit back and see what he actually did, the way he could compose his shots, the way that, you know, every CDR photo had that Yamaha banner in the background or that Fox banner or whatever banner that suited that brand. He just, he's just the king of, of motocross photography. You know, you, you can't, you can't beat what he does, and as well, from the um, the background that he came from, I mean, he's not a guy that grew up with Lightroom and Photoshop and spent six hours photoshopping this photo with glamorous effects and making it look like something it's not. You know, he he was a, a raw kind of a raw image specialist, and that's something that I struggled with when I first started. I spent all this time editing images, trying to make them look like something they're not. 
And it was something that the industry hadn't seen before, and it was something that was evolving in the photography industry, but it just didn't suit the the motocross work. And I found that, you know, stripping everything back to its rawest form and just putting out solid images was something that I needed to do to move forward in the industry. And I think that's when, for me, things started picking up a little bit. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I do remember your early day stuff. Uh, we'll get into, you know, geez, we did we worked on a lot of projects together over the years. But, yeah, um, it was, yeah, a little bit more edited and, and, and certainly a bit more heavier orientated with that side of it than being raw. Yeah. But it's just funny talking about Crowy because I, I was on tour with him with the MX Nationals for years. Like, you know, we would I was doing TV. He was doing the photography um, for the series and his work ethic was just gnarly. Like he'd shoot, you know, we, you know what it's like with MXN. You get to the track yeah. at six thirty in the morning or six in the morning on a Sunday morning, and he would shoot all day. And then we would get in the car to go to the airport to go home, and and he would have his own car that he would drive back to the hotel. And his flights were booked for Monday morning, and then he would edit all night long, and you know get the images to you know whatever manufacturer the series, you know all the different clients that he had. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he would just pull all nighters and then sleep on the flight home, and that was just how he did it. But um, anyway, enough about Crowy because we'll talk about that dude all day. But um, so yeah, you know, you obviously you supplement, you, you you know, you split it. You have your photography gigs, but you have a midweek job too. Yeah, so I um, I'm a fitter and turner by trade, and I work in a family business as a project manager. So that pretty much covers me from forty to sixty hours a week, depending on how work's going at the time. So that definitely keeps me busy. Um, I'm lucky that I'm in the position I'm in that it allows that flexibility. Obviously, with races in other states, I tend to fly out on a Friday afternoon or Friday night or get back on a Monday morning or Monday afternoon. So there's a lot of days that I need to take off and lucky within the, the family model business that I work in, I'm able to take those days without any question. It's just it's convenient, really, but it, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm lucky to be in that position. And uh, we'll talk about how I got into photography. But my my dad, being a, a hobby photographer, that he really understands the the travel involved with it. So he's very supportive of what I do, and that's always great when you've got a boss that backs you. Yeah, and that you know that's funny because I've got your notes here. Like I said, to so you, just shoot me a text of um, a timeline of sort of like your career and everything, and as much as we've been around each other a lot over the years, I, I didn't know your dad was a photographer. <laughs> um, I didn't know you started it when you were a kid. Cause I honestly thought like, cause l- let's start here. Like how I know Mark Jones is, is you started off with, with, I believe we met because you started training with me at the gym when I, when I was doing the gym program. Is, is that right? Yep. Yeah. 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 So I did a, I remember I did one of your courses at, at Nutter Warning. I'd, always wanted to do some coaching courses being the, the C grade rider I was and um, you kind of said hey I do gym and I knew a few guys back then um, that that I rode with went to your gym and there was back in the, the garage days where it first started yeah yeah back at mum's house yeah back in that yeah. would have been 2012 11 yeah I think yeah I think it was 12 at the time yeah. 2012 so I was, was training with guys like uh Jack Simpson back then there was Dean Mosick yeah yeah um, guys like that yeah, it's, it's funny because again I was just you're just Jonesy you've just been around forever probably you know you just probably think yeah. of it the same with me but 
yeah. I was like, hold on, how the hell did Jonesy and I even meet? I couldn't remember. I just yeah. remembered you always yeah. being around. But um, yeah, I didn't know any of this, that your dad was a photographer. I just thought that honestly, you got her and then you picked up a camera and were just really good at it. And I was like, you know, but we were young back then. I didn't really think much of it. I was just like, yeah, damn, Jonesy's yeah. a sick photographer. Let's do photos. But, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I had a little bit of experience coming into into the motocross scene. But so you sort for of me, it was- learned from your dad and then it says here that you also, you did a, a bit of, um, sort of studying with photography as well? Yeah, so I, I grew up pretty much uh, traveling with my dad. I'd, he's an early riser, I was an early riser, so weekends we'd jump in the car bright and early, go do sunrise shots, um, go down to local beaches. I grew up on the Mornington Peninsula, so there's plenty of nice places out there to go take photos. So it was just something that, that dad and I did. So I kind of always had a camera in my hand in some sense. I never really took to it too much of my younger years, but um, once I grew up and went through school and started to get to the final years of school, I didn't really have a direction of where I wanted to go in the future. I wasn't, I'm not going to say I'm artistic, but I always enjoyed arty kind of subjects. I played drums in, in bands, so. That's right, my, I forgot. Let, my, let's talk about that. You were a gnarly drummer in like hardcore metal bands. I completely forgot about yeah. that. Those were the days. Started out with the uh, with the emo post hardcore screamo bands and that's right. I always remember you were just rocking the uh, the hardcore slam dance shorts at the gym every t- every time you'd have a different band set on. And I am still rocking them today. You do. It hasn't changed much. I have not changed one bit. No, I love those shorts. Yeah. Got too many of them, so I, I keep spreading them. I don't wear them day after day for all those thinking that they probably get pretty smelly. But nah. Dude, you um, you should post some of the old videos you showed me of you drumming and doing live shows. Yeah. I used to get into it. I used to love it. It was because I think it was that, my way of just expressing myself. And <laughs> yeah, because you're kind of an angry dude, a little bit, a bit wild. And I think that that drumming definitely was an outlet for you. Um, yeah, I remember we had that in common because I don't think many people know this, but I used to be in a band once upon a time too. Um, and I think we would we, we joke about that. Like I used to be the singer in a hardcore band when I was at high school. So uh, it's funny, right? I feel like every uh, emo kid had their go at a band in some description. Whether or not they sang, play guitar, play drums, all of it probably very terribly. Oh, it was but it was the era, man. I still had a crack. Because how old are you? I'm 31 now. Yeah, so you're you're the same age as me. I'm 32. So yeah. we're with that era. Yeah. Yeah, and that was that was it in there. I went to a um, a school where, let's just say, hardcore metal wasn't a thing you would listen to. Yeah, okay. I was <laughs> a whole lot of guys that listened to classical music, and I remember there was another guy in there, Dylan. And so, hold on, are you, are you like educated? Like you went to a good school? Yeah, yeah. I'm, not that I'm, I'm saying I'm, you don't give that vibe off, but I've never, I've never really talked about this with you either. So. Yeah, no, I, I never really excelled at school. I was really good at maths, and like I said, I finished off with with music and art subjects. So yeah, okay, that's kind of where I ended up. I never, I never had ambitions of becoming a doctor or a vet or something fancy. Everyone else in my school was there to be a doctor, and I was that guy doing burnouts in my car that probably should have got expelled. But everyone else was there, covered in tattoos and stuff. Yeah, got, got, yeah. Here I was. I was one or two people. With tattoos, I'd left school with, you know, my whole chest and ribs and upper arm done. And let's talk about this for a second because kids today, 
I want to keep on track with your career and the photography thing, but kids today don't know. Cause again, we're the same age. Like I remember I had a sleeve early. I think I was 18, 19 when it was finished. People weren't tattooed like they are now. You know, that was no. a big deal back then in the two thousands. Yeah. Yeah. And for, and for me, I, I was 17 going to the tattoo shop and every Wednesday I got a two hour break in the middle of the day and me and my mate used to go down and catch a bus down the tattoo shop and we just talk crap with the guy and, you know, tell him how we're going to get these tats. And I just knew this guy was just like, oh, here come these wiener kids again, you know, just. Yeah, they just want to hang out. And, yeah. and, then, and then I got close to my birthday and I planned my birthday out. I went for my license at like 8.30 in the morning. And I think about two o'clock in the afternoon, I was in the in tattooist chair, in the chair to get my arm yeah. done. <laughs> and I think I walked out of there, made another booking, had the inside of my arm done two, three days later. And then the week after, I had a full chest piece done. <laughs> and then about two weeks later, I had my ribs done. And it just kind of, I don't know, it's that tattoo fever that everyone, everyone's got a tattoo will know that tattoo fever you get when you get one. And then you're just like, oh, I'm like another. You know, next thing you know. Yeah. It's, you're covered in tats. It's on. I, yeah, I stopped. Like, man, I haven't been tattooed for, geez, I think 2014 was the last time I got tattooed. But um, six, seven years later, it's coming back. Like, I'm actually, I've got a few cover-ups I want to get done. And then I might get, uh, I'm thinking about getting a lot more done on my chest and torso and back and that. But I just needed a break from it. But anyway, let's get back on track. So, um, we're yeah, talking so about, back, yeah, keep going. So, I was, yeah, so I, I did a few art subjects that, in my final years of school, art, studio art and all that, and they heavily evolved around photography. So back then, digital really wasn't a thing. I remember I did uh, in studio arts um, was all video. And back then, you'd record to a cassette tape and then have to upload it to a computer. And it was bad. It was terrible. Like when you look at you look back at the footage then, and I, I had spent... I was working at Macca's 20 hours a week trying to pay for all this stuff. I remember I spent like $1,800 on this video camera and I look back now <laughs> and like, what was I thinking? My phone 10 years ago could have got better footage than what, what this camera was getting, but that's the day and age we lived in. And I had a, Dude, I, had a I remember some camera. funny stories. Are you telling me about the, the Macca's life? We won't go into them, but you, you, yeah. <laughs> you, you I lived in the Macca's life. Oh mate, there was some stories, man. For, for those of you guys listening that know Jonesy, you're going to get a laugh out of like, everyone knows there's professional Jonesy and then there's Jonesy and um, we're not going to meet the other Jonesy today, but he's a good time. Yeah, I try and have a good time anyway. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I, back then it was uh, film photography. Digital was starting out. We're talking 2004, 2005. Um, it, I know at a professional level then, it was when there was still that umming and ahhing, do you go to a, a full-frame professional camera, which weren't really available. Um, so for me, being in, in year 12 at school, we didn't really have that option of spending the big money. So I had a, a film camera, used to wind our own film, process our own film, develop our own photos in the darkroom, and it was all black and white. And that's really where I learned, you know, the art of photography and and back then, there was no taking a snap, looking on the back of the camera and going, oh, that's not right or it's out of focus. Like, you had 24 or 36 chances to, to get your shot per roll. And Do you think that's... You'd have to um, wait three, four days to, to find out 
what happened. Do you think it's an art form that's lost now with the, the new generation and they would probably benefit from learning it? Absolutely. Like I remember doing a, a shoot for a brand a few years back and there was another so-called photographer there. I remember at the end of the day we were we were dumping all our cards onto the onto the laptop of the brand we were shooting for and I think I pulled 300, 400 shots for the day but I knew out of those it was probably, you know, a, a solid 50 to 60% were, were going to be used mm. and I remember the guy comes in and he's like, yeah, did you go to that? I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, no, I feel like I've got some shots now. He's like, yeah, no, got some killer shots out there. He's pulling all these memory cards out of his bag and I'm like, what's this guy doing? Ended up with about three and a half, four thousand photos he took for the day. Oh, wow. And I didn't see one of them go out into yeah, any, coverage any or, of the brand. And I was yeah. just like, you know, this is this is where it's at. You know, people don't understand that um, you don't need to take 30, 40 shots on a corner. I mean, my camera at the moment can take uh, 14 photos in a second, but I can tell you now if I took... 14 photos a second of every time I took a photo out in that track. My time in between races that I get to get photos out, that's that's lost. That's gone. You know, you don't have that. No, not at all. And, and that's, thousands of photos. that's something we'll touch on later. But, like, again, it's – and I work in – obviously, I work in media now. Like, I, I have to do deal with um, event photographers and, and getting Dropbox links and turnarounds to get out, um, you know, social media and PR and all that sort of stuff that, that we produce through um, ID Media Group. And like, you know, it's the same for all of us, like MXN, like we, you know, I finished TV, you guys finished shooting the race, we're straight into the, well, I guess even Supercross, MX Nationals, whatever event we're doing, you know, you're straight into the media room, you guys are dumping memory cards, starting to edit, starting to get images out to whatever deals you've got with manufacturers, series, you know, gear brands, whatever, um, guys like me that need them for the press releases and everything else, right? Social media, like it's a real tight turnaround. People... Yeah. I think you just get to shoot these sick images at the races and it's living the dream, but it's it's a pretty gnarly workload. And it's also the difference between having work and, and not having work. You know, you've got to adapt to that, that 2020 um, idea that you can take a photo on your phone and post it on Instagram. So you've got to beat that guy on the sidelines who's, who's putting the images straight on. You know, you might be having to put out a couple of hundred, three, four hundred photos even for a day and you've got one guy out there posting photos straight away from the sidelines because they've got nothing to worry about, and you've got to compete with those people. You know, you've got to be able to put out those images fast. Yeah, it's got to be high quality day, and but you've timely. Got to have them. And I know um, we'll get into it later, but for me, I've got to put out images during the race or at the end of the race. You know, mm. and that that that's the that's the standard that the industry needs right now. And if you're not delivering that standard. That's the difference between you having work and not having work. Yeah, I you know? agree. It's it's instant social media. It's instant now, and people expect that coverage. At, you know, the yeah. race is finished. Why don't I have have my images? Why don't I have the Instagram report? Why don't I have the PR? Whatever it is, but we'll get yeah. more into that later. So, um, so yeah, you're you're classically trained in the art of photography. We will say, and um, yeah, yeah. So I, I I had I only really knew film, and I, I finished school and basically dropped everything I had, became a, a concrete a full time working That's with right. my brother. You were on the, the conk life, I remember that. Yeah. I was on the conk life, uh, living the slab dream and <laughs> I'm sure no one really lives the slab dream and I certainly didn't, but uh 
that was life. That paid the bills. That got me money. And uh, I grew up, spent a lot of time at my grandparents' place, and they had a little, uh, a little Suzuki seventy cc bike. Well, no, sorry, DS eighty. I think it was actually a little DS eighty, which I reckon would have been a late eighties model. And I used to fang around on that until I was too big and. I always dreamt of having a dirt bike. It was just, it was what I wanted. I used to go to all the Supercross races indoor back in the day at the Tennis Centre and the Krusty Demons. Like, I used to love that kind of stuff. And Yeah, so you were a fan I, back before you even I rode. Was, yeah. I was, yeah. And, you know, watching the American Supercross, like, I loved it. I just, it was, at the time, that was my dream. I wanted to, to race dirt bikes. So I um, saved up my money and bought this KXF250 2004 model, arguably one of the worst bikes ever released. Yeah, I was about to say, that's probably one of the worst production bikes ever made, ever. Um, I think, yeah. Well, so to be fair, so were the uh, RMZ 250s, because they were the same. But it was the same yeah, bike, yeah. <laughs> but mine had a monster kit, so it went that much better. I would have gone. Did it have a green power band, too? Uh, yeah, and I had the, the big Kawasaki Factory A6 sticker, because you couldn't have a you know, monster cowie bike without having a Kawasaki factory racing sticker on the back of your ute. No, that was that like was you the... and no one unless you had that sticker. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. So uh so yeah, I bought that, spent thousands of dollars rebuilding it every eight hours because the thing was just a hunk of crap. And uh I I spent a spent a few years on that, enjoyed that, pretty much only got down to, to Frankston back in the day. Um used to ride that loop track like I was Bubba Stewart, <laughs> you know, thought I was the man and then... The old funky town uh, loop track, yep. Yeah, then I got to um, 2010 and I'd been riding for a while and thought, you know what, I want to want to try and take up racing and I thought I thought with the speed I had in that loop track that I could probably go out there and give it to some of the guys. So I, I went out and bought a 2010 RMZ250 and that really kick-started everything for me and I thought the thing was a rocket ship coming from the uh, 04 KXF, which had repetitive rebuilds on it. Repetitive rebuild so, syndrome. <laughs> and uh, I'd actually never changed, in all those years, I'd never changed a tyre on it. So it oh, was running wow. the whatever tyres I'd had on it for six years. Oh, sorry, so I got it in 2000 and, uh, 2007. I ended up getting So I had it for three years. Didn't change a tyre. And I remember going to Frankston for the first time, and I was like, Oh my god! This thing like turns, it accelerates. Like what? What a machine! And back then, it was the first fuel injected two hundred and fifty. I'm pretty sure. No, they were a good bike because I had the the twenty um, ten four hundred and fifty Suzuki. Um, yep. I went. That was when I just got back into riding tracks again in twenty ten. I just went to Burners and financed the freaking twenty ten. Um, yeah. But the two hundred and fifty, like at that time, it was like Reed and Dungey. Do you remember? They were killing yeah. it. I think Moss that, was on them over here. Like they were a good bike. And because they were only fuel injected bike, and no one knew what fuel injection was. It was just it was the word of the the word of the industry. It was like, well, I've got to have a fuel injected bike, and you know, RMZs were out there left, right, and center, as opposed to today. You know. Oh, what a, a turnaround in a, Suzuki, in a decade, hey? That's crazy. Yeah. I reckon, you know, 2010 to 2012, the, the RMZs were one of the, the most popular bikes closely with the Hondas that everyone bought and for some reason and constantly changed valves on them. Yeah, I mean, like I, you bought a Honda for the chassis and the and the suspension. You didn't buy it for the motor. That was certainly the yeah. case. But 
Um, I never understood that, but it was what everyone else wanted. But it's funny yeah, you so. say um, because you know when I remember I, I remember it now. Now you said that I remember you coming to I don't remember the Nana Wadding School, but I do remember you coming to a bunch of schools and we got into the gym. But at that point, like you had the van, you had the bike, and and you and um, DJ Katzi at that point were you were living the privateer dream. I mean, you guys weren't. You know, like you said, you were like a C-grade guy. Like, you wasn't racing pro or anything, but you were going to all the races. You were training during the week. Like, you guys were living it. That was my life, you know. That was that was everything to me. And, you know, training two nights a week with yourself and then go ride Saturday, Sunday, sometimes try and get down to, to Frankston on a Wednesday afternoon and, um, and get some laps in there after work. I'd worked in that kind of area. So it was, it was somewhat convenient, but you know, nearly every Wednesday, regardless, my bike would be loaded up. And if I finished early enough, I'd get down the track and, and spin some laps. And that's just, that was life. That's, it was everything that I wanted to do. Man, it was fun back then though, wasn't it? Like, you know, obviously I was doing the, the training side of it then, but I just remember us, we had so much fun back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. It was just enjoyable. And I think, especially for all those kids and, and, even that the the late teens and early twenties guys out there that struggle to train on their own, it was just a good group of guys. Like you know, when you when you're doing those tough sessions and you just want to give up, you know, everyone was there, we had each other's back and we just made everyone feel like we could do it, you know. We were that strength behind each other and it was it was great to have and, and for me I let, met a lot of people through gym and then through riding and coaching schools like that and you know, people I still still talk to today and yeah, it's funny really how um, it's nice to hear you say that, you know, because I think that's sort of why I, we're not talking about me, but like we'll bring, we'll bring it up. Like I think why the gym program and the coaching that I did back then grew so quickly was that it really was that kind of that team family environment. You know, it was um, it was good. And, and then I think, you know, s- transitioning from there, like you said, you, 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 you kind of, I think, might have got introduced to the industry a little bit through that, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of did in that way because for me, I, I once I picked up the 2010, I, I felt comfortable to race. So I did a few uh, club days down Blue Rock, and then I transitioned into the uh, Gibbies and the and the Vicks and that and racing that awarding. And um, I remember it was 2014 at the start of 2014, and uh, me and Catsy were going everywhere together and. He said pretty much he was going to go A grade race under 19s at the Nationals and set the world alight. And me being the factory C grader, I put every intention into making it to B grade, worked my ass off in the summer. <clears throat> and I remember we said we we're going to go race the race the Westerns this year. Like we had it all planned out. And it was the, the shipwreck two day open, which was a one day open back then, I think. Yeah, and I remember yeah. I went out and practice and I was the only dude in CJ, uh, C grade jumping the um the step up before the finish line. I thought, you know, I've got this. I put the fastest time in practice and I, was, I felt so confident. And I remember I had like gate 35 on the far right in the left-hand corner, first corner, and I was notorious for getting a good start even though I was probably the biggest dude on a 250 in any class. Yeah, hand, yeah hands down race. ever. I mean, you know, that's where the – the Donkey Kong nickname comes from because you could deadlift heavier than anybody in the gym. Um, you got that short, stocky build, and you're just like a gorilla, dude. There's no other way to put it, is there? Like, I mean, the, the hair might have something to do with that as well. <laughs> Maybe. 
I've got more, more hair than skin, but yeah, but yeah. Oh, that's right. You're a hairy dude. Hey, eh? you'd, you'd yeah. always train shirtless in the gym too. You used to put off a lot of people. I remember. Yeah. I, and <laughs> I remember I used to get a few laughs and that. I remember then you did the, the girls class and I knew they were laughing at me, but I didn't care. No, it but, was me. But you got to understand, like, I'm not talking about summer. It was like middle of winter and you'd be shirtless. As soon as the warm up was done, yeah. shirts like Jones is here, shirts off. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even know if I made the warm up. I remember even when we were at the gym and we'd do the the warm up run, and I'm pretty sure I just ripped my shirt off before I even went to that. <laughs> it was just your trademark. It was, that oh, was me. It's good times, <laughs> good times, man. But um, so yeah, you yeah, ended so, up breaking your back that day, right? Well, no. The, the the first the first crash I had this day was um, I yeah I had this this wide gate and I I got out of the gate really well and I looked left and I couldn't see anyone and I was like sweet awesome start I've got this. And then next thing, I'm sitting in the back of my van and I'm like, what the hell? And some guy in a CR250 using that two-stroke power from like gate 40 came around and took out my front wheel and being the, the size I am, I didn't exactly bounce and I went head first into the ground and oh, man. knocked myself completely out. And I remember it was just just coming, like I, I, was, I was awake for the, the whole time, but just the concussion just just hit me hard, and I was just sitting in the back of my van. And, and then I remember Catsy came in, and he'd like snapped levers and come last. And then he went out for the second race and just crashed on every corner and came last. And that's unlike Catsy that, to crash. Yeah, yeah. Between us, we had a few, <laughs> a few big ones, a few instances. But uh, yeah, that was pretty much both of us. That that long trip home from Warnable, the, the three and a half, four hours, or whatever it was, we just had a big depression session and we're just like why are we doing this and went from there and I remember um, it was the first time the the missus had been to the, the track with me and I took it down to Frank's and, and I remember going through this roller section and this high side and I broke pretty much everything on the right side of my body from the waist up mm, it was just right. between yeah. the ribs the collarbone the shoulder blade um, dislocated the shoulder, and they they couldn't get it. Like the the guy came, the doc came in, and he's like, you know, these, these are the kind of injuries we see from like high speed car crashes. Like you, to be able to break the amount of bones and the type of bones you did in one accident is near impossible. And I was just, you know, again, it was one of those those hard moments. And yeah, it, it, it I kind do. Of and I thought. You know what? Am, what? What am I going to do? Like, I still love the sport, and I still rode. I mean, the amount of times I, like I broke my coccyx back, I've still got a broken back now that doesn't heal. Um, ACLs, both ACLs went. I had every stereotypical motocross injury. I just didn't have the the nationals story or A grade story to go with it. I just had the yeah, but every, everyone, story. everyone yeah. can relate to that. But uh, you know, it doesn't matter what riding level you're at; the passion's the same. And yeah, but absolutely. I'll say this, dude: you were, you were, you were fucking gnarly. Because I remember you'd call me Sunday, like I was your coach, and you know everything back then. And you'd call me Sunday or Monday, and you'd be like, "Look, man, you know, like I did an ACL, or I broke my fucking back, or my ribs, or whatever." Um, I got to stop cussing, but it's just, I got to ex- explain it to people. <laughs> and then you'd still, you'd still rock up at the gym on Tuesday night and, and you'd be like, oh, I can't really do anything. I got to disco. I'll just do some core or I'll just cycle or, you know, and it's like, Jonesy, just, yeah. mate, just take a couple of weeks off, please. Like, no, that was, that was, 
you were just that was me. I just, yeah, you were super like dedicated and and look, you were never the most talented writer. Let's be honest, as far as like natural talent. But um, if I would push you to do something, I mean, honestly, you'd really push yourself way more than I'd push you because I was always trying to keep you on the bike. But you were not afraid yeah. to send it. <laughs> no, that's it, and, and and that's just kind of the attitude I had. You know, I had to give it my all. It's I was working working big hours, working the concrete life. It was it was hard. You know, I was putting in the hard yards at work. And at the end of the end of the weekend, I look on my bank account, and I'd be pretty much back to where I was before my paycheck went in. You know, every every weekend would consume my money between parts, riding, fuel. But that was just what I wanted to do. You know, that was just what drove me to. Oh, you lived it, and you guys did it. You know, and that's cool because I think a lot of people do it for the. You know, they want to be pro, they want to do Supercross nationals, but that love for it is the reason we all do it. So I, I got respect for that, man. But yeah. So like you said, you know, you got, you know, you were banged up to all hell by then. And, um, that's when the photography started to become more of a thing where you could be around the sport and, and still, you know, do, do what you enjoy as far as being around the sport and the industry, but definitely not end up in the hospital every week. Yeah. So I, I still used to go to the track and I, I still used to you know, chat to mates and just be there. I just really enjoyed being at the track, but, but being there and just watching it, it was just hard. I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know what to do. I felt like I had to do something. And back then, there was very few photographers that really put out images, no one that really put out quality images. I mean, back in the day, it was all DMAC images. And I mean, she killed it as far as I was concerned. Would would get that photo of everyone, make everyone happy, and do it for the love. Like, that that was great back then, but there was no one really taking it to the next level and on a local level like you said it was either that there was the professional photographers at the the highest level events and then there was yes. pretty much and it's funny dude because you and i had a similar like I, I filled that coaching gap in a state level that i thought was missing and you're talking about the photography thing at the same level like it's the same the gap we yeah. filled was just we filled that state level yeah. void in the, in the market you know absolutely and, that, and there was that void and I, I never I never picked up a camera again and said, I'm gonna make millions of dollars off this and show the world what I'm made of. I just I just did it to keep busy. And uh I, I picked up a, a camera off eBay just to get me going. I, I didn't spend mega bucks, I just bought something basic and thought, you know what, if I can stick at this for a few months and, and be somewhat into it and, and enjoy it maybe then I can look at spending some more money. And I remember doing it for a few months. I'd get down to the local races um, and and give out a few images and that to people. And I got lots of positive feedback. And I mean, I look back now, the only reason I got positive feedback because I was a, I had no competition. There was no one comparing me to anyone at that time. You know, I was the only guy there. So <laughs> yeah, but at, at, at the same time, you were, you were, you know, you were pretty good from, from the beginning, from what I remember. So yeah, I, I mean, I had that understanding, and, and a lot of people that were were kind of beginners in it. I mean, photography is not as easy as point and shoot. You know, there's a lot to it. There's a lot of lot behind the scenes you, you got to pick up between composition settings and that. And I had all that in my mind as to what I wanted to do. And I think I gave I, I changed it locally from taking a happy snap to taking a somewhat professional style image, although the, the quality wasn't at a professional quality all the time it was on it was definitely better than yeah. what, it was it was it was better than what was 
available in previous years. So for me, it's it's what what kind of launched me locally, and that that sent me. Um, as I said, I went to all the Vic rounds, went to all the the Gippies, and then I started selling images. I think ten bucks a rider per day, and then next thing you know, I got fifty riders hit me up, and I got five hundred bucks from a day. And I'm like, wow, you know, this is this is not bad. And so um, I kept going to practice days here and there. And in 2014, I was still still good buddies with Jake Katz, and he was training to race. Um, the Supercross series, and we were going to do a, a video series pretty much, which entailed all his training leading up to the, the first round and then didn't do get, a round-by-round video. He didn't get very far into his training, though, did he? Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> first day of Supercross. At James Brown's place, and um, he's eyeing up this quad, and we're like, oh, we're like, you're only practicing, you know, you, you, you don't need it. Was Would it have been quicker? Maybe, but... You're at the practice track. No one cares. And I remember Taylor Potter came to ride that day and he just happened to hop out of his car, walk over the hill, and then Katsy just seat bounced it to nose case into the back of the quad. Yeah, probably the and worst The worst case. Didn't even get close to casing the top of it, like landed the bottom. Yeah. I mean, it was big and especially- I mean, I've only seen the video that you showed big. me, but that was gnarly. It was long, but it wasn't high, but- <laughs> It was just ridiculous. And I remember Potter just came down. And he's just like, what the hell was he thinking? Like, you know, he's like guys in the States wouldn't be jumping that. As like, Taylor would just be in Taylor. What are you thinking? Yeah. It was just like, what a dickhead. And I'm just like, yep. <laughs> yeah, that's and my I, boy. I just remember, I'm like, at that moment, I was just like, yep, well, there goes Supercross this year. Looks like I've got a bit of free time. And it was about a week later, um, Yareev slid into my DMs on Instagram, uh, as Yareev likes to do with a lot of people in the, in the world when he when he sources talent. As he we does. Justin Brayton and so forth. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, and he, and, he, and he said to me, hey, I've got to, uh, got to get some images of the Honda guys tomorrow at Frankston. Um, is it something you can do? Um, I'd, I'd like to like you have you down there. And, of course, I was like, yep, yep, I'm there. I, you know, whatever you want, I'll do it. You know, I was pretty green at the time. Yeah, you're like, this is my opportunity. Yep, I'm in. Yeah. And the only time I'd actually ever met Yareev was at Super X at Phillip Island. I pretended like I was working at the event and went up to the Monster Energy uh, stand on the side of the track. And I remember just standing there in the races and looked next to me and there's Valentino Rossi and I'm just like, wow. And then I just remember this guy grabbing on the shoulder and he was like, who are you? And I was like, Mark? He's like, who are you with? And I was like, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not like, meant to be here. <laughs> and I remember this like security guard just grabbed me by the shoulder and threw me out of this monster energy stand. And I was just like, that was the first time I met your Eve, which <laughs> obviously didn't remember. Doesn't remember yeah, me, yeah. Which is pretty good. Probably will now, but yeah, so, um, that's awesome. Yeah, so, so to, be able to, to be able to do this to Frankson was to me, I was like a kid in the candy store. I was like, yep, yeah, this is perfect. So, um, back then it was Jay Marmont, um, Louis Woods and Gav Faith, who was still in America at the time, but um, so it was just Louis and uh, that's right. I forgot Louis rode for you, Reeve. Wow, yeah, it's going back. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, he, I think he rode maybe half a heat race or something like that. And he, I remember he stacked right in front of me at Bathurst. I can't remember if he broke his leg, maybe. Yeah, he did a tip fib, I think, um, didn't he? But I remember, yeah, 
No, it was it was Nali and uh, no, it was a FEMA. So it was yeah, a FEMA. I remember now. FEMA, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, it was kind of surreal. Here I am at at Frankston. You're always like, right? I go out with Jay. I need to get some images of Jay. And I I knew that he was just looking at me like, who the hell is this kid? Like, what does he know? But he was down to earth guy, and he was like, hey, let's go here, let's go here. And he basically schooled me on, you stand there, I'll hit this corner, and you know, blast a berm. And you know, yeah, would have done even a few magazine day. shoots in his day, right? Yeah, and it was just, it was just crazy, and he and he was so helpful, just just to be that. You know, he could have just been like, you know, you read, you know who I am, you know, you put me with this kid. Like, why have we got this kid taking him just for us? He doesn't know what he's doing, but no, he he kind of backed me in and helped me through everything. And I remember he was stoked on all the images we got, and I went out with Louie and did the stuff with Louie, and um. We were just, it was near the end of the day and I was showing you all the images and he just said, how would you feel about shooting the Supercross series for me? And back then it was when uh, he was running it and I, of course, jumped at the opportunity. He goes, I'll give you a call midweek and gave me a call, negotiated some, some money and said, you know, this is how it's going to be, you know. And I, I, I was stoked at the opportunity. I definitely wasn't ready for it in a in many ways, but oh, you learn, you learn quickly. That, you know? Yeah. You look, you, you know, learn quickly on the job. You don't turn them opportunities down. eh? Yeah. And then, and earlier, earlier that year, I'd rocked up at the, the shift ride on tour. And, um, that's when Jeff Emmick came out and rode with a few of the local guys, Bill Coe, Sinclair and that. And I remember I took a heap of images and I sent them to Mick Sinclair and kind of said, you know, Hey, I'm Mark and this is what I do, you know? If, if you're interested in, in doing anything in the future, let me know. And I remember he hit me up and he's just like, you know, you, you've killed it on these images. He's really good. And, um, and they ended up running with them around the world. And um, in the gift shop at Fox and Corona, there's one hanging up on the wall, one of Jeff Emmick just absolutely launching it. So that's right, dude. Like that's surreal, which I'll, we'll go into later. But yes, yeah, right. just to see things like that was like, well, 2014, that was the, that's the year. I, I don't remember, like, I, the, the transition, you were kind of out from 2012 or 13, but you still came to the gym and you were always around. Yeah. You was always at the track. Yeah. But I don't really remember photography that much. And then all of a sudden, I just, you shot my arms. Um, remember we did that open day at the gym where I had the, the, Fox, the Fox autograph signing. Um, we had all the team sports guys and you shot photos there and they were, like, sick. The amazing photos. Um, and yeah. then since then, like we, you and I went on like a two or three year, just you, were, we were like always together shooting stuff. Um, yeah. And, and that day at the, uh, at the gym shoot, Mick Sinclair popped down cause he was still working for yeah. back in the day. And, um, and he's like, you're shooting supercross. And I said, yeah, I've actually, you know, just had a chat to your Eve the other day and he's getting me on board for the series. And he said, oh, we need images for, for Monza and that. If you're interested, I can check out what we've got in the budget and we can source something out. And that really started that relationship with Monza as well. And um, for me, it gave me that extra bit of money to cover the series and walk away with money in my pocket at the end of the day. And that really kick-started me. It really gave me that opportunity to, to get my name on the national scene. And as I said, I definitely wasn't ready, but it's, it's an opportunity you can't say no to. It's, it's a... If, if I'd said no and I look back now, I probably wouldn't be in the position I'm in now, but 
No, nah, you, you say yes and then you figure it out. That's just how it is with, with, with the industry, with business. You, that's just what you do. And I guess that's what I'm getting at. Like, I don't remember you really doing much. And then all of a sudden it just exploded and you were everywhere shooting for everybody almost within yeah. the span of a couple of years. So, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's just a testament to you just saying, yeah, let's do it and we'll figure it out, right? <laughs> yeah, and I remember I went through and um, I met a few guys, um, Grant, 56 Clicks, I met him out there and still friends with him today and Aaron from Full Noise. Um, we've ended up becoming travel buddies over the last few years and that, traveling around together, but I've met these other photographers and there, there was no beef there. It was always good to know that your mate's there and, you know, we could always rely on each other and sometimes one of us would miss a shot and we'd, we'd flick shots out of each other and there was a there was just some camaraderie between us, you know, that, that really stood the test of time and it really helped us in those times of need. And that, that, that 2014 year really set me up, um, set my name up in the industry. It didn't necessarily get me to where I am now, but it, it kick-started everything that I needed to to get my foot in the door at places. Yeah, hundred percent. Like you said, and, and that's the thing Like once, you know, the local level and the national level has always been a little bit separate. And, um, I think once you get it, it just takes a getting it in and into the national, the pro scene. And once you do, then people see you legit and you're going to stick around. Then it kind of flows on from there. But it's sort of like without yeah. that introduction, you're never going to get into the, into the game, so to speak. Um, and then that, that's where it was for me. And uh, it came to 2015 and, um, the photography of the Nationals was a pretty tight ship. Jeff Crow was doing all the work for Kevin. He pretty much shot for absolutely everyone and, and was the man at that time. So um, as per the Nationals, I, I didn't have any work as such, so I couldn't gain access to the track and there was a few issues there. So it left me kind of for 2015 wondering, you know, I just got my foot in the door. I felt, I felt like I was on top of the world, but then it was like a reality check to say, hey, you're not the only guy out there. You know, there's plenty of other guys. And that was kind of a, a kick in the bum for me to say, if I want to do this, I've, I've got to give it give it my all. And I went and shot the 2015 um, Supercross Series, pretty much had the same clients in, in Yareev, uh, Monza, and a few bits and pieces here, did a few things for um, Moto Online. And then it was 2016 was the turning point, and, and I said, I'm shooting this series no matter what. Like, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to be at every round. I remember us talking about that up. too because you, you were trying to figure out a way to make it work. And, yeah, you know, you I, needed, kind of I had, needed backing. You kind of had and, Supercross and, on lock, but um, it was a struggle to, to get the, the, I guess, the funding for you to, to shoot a full, a full year, right, with MXN and Supercross. Yes, yeah. yeah. And as I said, Crowe owned it and then had every right to own it. I mean, he, he was the man and my work was nowhere near the standard of his, but I, I still I still had to get my, my way back in and the only way in was to get was get back in by a uh, a magazine or a media a media source and locally um, all the, the big magazines use Crowe or they use someone internally. So I looked abroad and I reached out to a heap of magazines in America and ended up working for Vital MX and Verb Moto. That, that's and crazy to me because, I, again, I forgot so much of this. I mean, at the time, I remember you telling me like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm putting out content for Verb and Vital and that's how we're getting to the rounds. And 
you know, yeah. again, we see each other at the races and, you know, you're just like, oh, yeah, cool, man. Like, everything's so hectic. But that, you know, that that was cool. Like, international coverage yeah. for the series and um, yeah. just, just being resourceful, getting it out there. Yeah, and I, I think it was it was good in a way because it got me to the races. I mean, I was making, once you convert the, the rate, I was making, sorry, I was getting paid about 100 bucks a round. Wow. So, once you work out, I, I mean, travel... Travel-wise, I had to drive everywhere. I had my family with a bed in the back. I couldn't afford hotels. I couldn't afford flights. So I was driving every single round, sleeping in the back of my van, doing whatever it took just to get images out. And I think Kev saw that um, that dedication that I had, and I think he got gained a lot of respect for me that year. Well, that's what I was going to say, dude. That, that doesn't go unnoticed as much as yeah. sometimes you have to put in the hard yards before anyone takes yeah. you seriously, you know? Yeah, and I, I knew, I knew that without putting in those hard yards, I was never gonna, never gonna have my chance. And and Kev saw that I gave it everything, and really, he was getting free promotion internationally. And those those websites of Vital and Verb were probably pulling more hits than everything combined locally. You know, they were massive back in the day. On another note, yeah. did you see Verb Moto start popping up again on Instagram? Yeah, I seen. Uh, I seen they've been doing a few little things every now and then, posting a lot of uh, throwbacks and whatnot. Throwbacks and, and starting to get back into it. I, I doubt they will, especially in the times we're in now. But no, nah, it's just you know, I, I think it's more the nostalgia than anything, isn't it? Because for for a solid ten years or so, Verb was just amazing. Yeah, yeah, and I mean they they did everything more on the uh, literary lens, and they they looked after those those writers that weren't the big names, and then they just. They were the website. Like Verb, Verb was it. That was the the cool place to be. And it was. Do you remember Verb Platinum? It was like, man, if you got a Verb Platinum, you were the guy. Yeah. <laughs> Just Barsha yeah, doing panic rev whips for days on Verb Platinums. It was cool. Yeah, that, that that was the scene back then. And and for me to shoot for them, I was I was stoked. You know, I wasn't making the money, but I was getting to the races. It helped me build a portfolio and. And in a way, because I wasn't shooting for everyone and I was only shooting, say, I needed maybe 50 images for the day for Vital and Verb, that allowed me to put more more effort into my images. And instead of shooting a, a bunch of images trying to cover absolutely every rider, I could be more selective and put out better quality content than I probably ever had before. Yeah, I agree. I, I, think-, I think that was a changing point for me. And, it was, and that, that was the year where I had a good high look at my work and kind of said, this this isn't going to cut it. Like this whole HDR over edited bullshit images that I was putting out at a local level, it's like, yeah, that's sick. No one's seen that before. But on a professional level, you're not going to open ADB magazine and say that image there because it, it looks like shredded cheese. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I knew that and I, I knew that I had to change the way I... I took images in the way I processed images to get to that professional standard. I think, well, and you, you know, for- you invested a lot. Like, let's not. Um, we should probably touch on that, dude. Like, because I remember around that time, like 2016 was the year that you know, um, I I sold up the gym by then. I was doing the the junior race team, and I was coaching full time. And we had sponsors: Peter Stevens, Fox, KDM. Like, we ran a, a pretty legit program back then. And you know, you would shoot our um, 
our, our team poster shoots, you would shoot the team launches, you'd go to the races and shoot content for us as well. And, you know, those weren't massive paying gigs, but we made sure that, you know, there was some, you know, the, the sponsors were, were paying and, and um, we, we made sure that we broke enough off that you could do a good job with what we had, right? But, you know, you would rock up to the to the schools we were doing or if we were shooting content at a race or, you know, the team launches or whatever it was, man, and, and you'd have the van kitted out with power packs and you'd have the laptop workstation, yeah. you'd have more flashes than than anybody I've ever seen. Like, your, your game in 2016 went from, like, local to you know, hands down the, the sickest setup I've ever seen. And still to this day, like your, your setup yeah, at the I, track is legit, you know? And then there's that, there's that kind of common saying, you know, you don't, you don't need to have the best camera and the best lenses and the best lights to take good images. But when it sure helps, <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't necessarily help my images, but it, it just takes it to another level. Like there's only so much you can do with natural light. And then you start adding strobes in, and people are like, wow, you know, it's it, you look at like shoots that Cubby does over in the states and that, and they're all lit with strobes and everything's just perfect. It adds that that fill light into the images, and you can't get that with natural natural light without a lot of work and things like that. I knew I had to invest. Like, I couldn't be stuck stuck at the same level as that. If I was stuck at that that local level, I was never going to make it. And I had to. I had to take it to that next level, and 2016 was that year. And I mean, I, I was lashing out. I probably spent uh, about five grand on lights and, and stuff like that, which now I look back isn't much compared to what I've got now. But back then, when you're losing about three hundred dollars a round, a minimum, that's big money, you know. And again, um, by that time, I'd, I'd moved into my apprenticeship, so. I wasn't exactly killing it as an apprentice fitter, but every dollar I was going in was going back into photography, trying to trying to help elevate my style, and oh, it yeah. definitely paid off then. And moving into moving into Supercross, um, a lot. I know. I think it was the year Jeff Crow wasn't doing Supercross, um, and I picked up a few clients here and there that that he dropped and. Yeah, because by was then it was sixteen. Man, I'm trying to remember because Ozex was Ozex was running right. That was the first year. Was nah, sixteen was the um, was the last year Reeve, I believe, put it together. Really, I thought the first Ozex was not nah, three years ago. Seventeen was it? Twenty seventeen. Man, I, this is this shows how long we've been in the industry. I just oh, get no, everything. Maybe it wasn't actually. No, no it was twenty. Maybe it wasn't. It was twenty fifteen, dude. Was it? Yeah, I think Uribe promoted a bunch of events, but I believe 2000, yeah, 2015 was the first OzX. It was either 15 or 16, but anyway, it would have been running by then. But uh, did you yeah. shoot OzX or did AME, they were running their own crew, I think, right? Yeah, so um, the first year of OzX, well, 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 it was kind of hard because Supercross was really a free-for-all. If you own a camera, an iPhone, and well, that, that was some of the Queensland back. rounds, wasn't it? It was just out of hand. You, you go to the Queensland rounds and there's 30, 40 guys um, and there's old mates standing on the back of the berm squirting and slashing the rider's eyes and, you know. You know I'm <laughs> I remember, to, I remember these not, conversations that I remember you coming back just uh, going, oh, my goodness, it was crazy. Photography etiquette was just up shit creek <laughs> and it was <laughs> like I'm trying not to get into fights but then I'm, I'm also – trying to look out for the safety of the riders and 
I'd rather every rider go home safe and me get good shots and not get that banger than try and get that banger shot and old mate sends it over the berm and breaks his arm. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And it's oh, hold up! Didn't get it. 2016 Supercross. Th- 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 we're we're completely forgetting the fact that I raced 2016 Supercross, and you took a lot of photos of me. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think you got all of the three laps of practice at Toowoomba I did practice. before I blew yeah. my ACL out. I think along with about ten other riders that day. Yeah, that whoop that section was. was um, I'll, I'll claim it. I think I was one of the first unseated riders to go to the hospital out of that section, but <laughs> a lot of people followed during the night show. <laughs> That was uh, that was the end of Jimmy Dakotas's Australian career, and on that series, he um, yeah he did pretty he... sure in the same whip section he, he high sided in the main event, and um, I remember they were stripping his bike, and he just signed with Geico, and they they pretty much said that's it. He didn't really hurt himself bad, but I think it was no nah, he a bit of a he hit the. I remember watching because like, I was in the stands, I, I was on crutches, and just I knew my knee was done. I didn't go to the hospital. I was just like, just get me on a plane and go home the next day, but. Yeah, you um, yeah. First of all, yeah, Dakota's has crashed. I mean, so many guys. I remember Todd Waters just eating it in that section. Like so many guys. But then Whoops were that track was honestly gnarly, the most AMA tracks I've ever seen. Like yeah. that that Whoop yeah. section and that rhythm coming back the other way. It was like a three yeah. three on it, off on three out. Like just insane. It really wasn't a rhythm section. It was like so awkward for for guys to do and. I think a lot of guys were, were trying new things and just going long, coming up short, whatever it may be, and just, just eating it over the bars. It was it was a gnarly race. but it was. I remember, dude, because I set out the first round because I aggravated a bunch of old injuries. Like, I hadn't raced for years, but for some reason, I just got this idea like, yeah, I've, I've got some funding. I'll do Supercross. It'll be fun, you know? And you, yeah. you were coming to the practice track a lot with me at Cruzig's and at Jono's place. We were riding... I mean, geez, that's when um, Seven Deuce Deuce and and, Deuce, yep. and Gavin Faith that's were actually right. living with me back then. Um, yeah, it's typical you refashion. He's like, "Hey, can can they come live with you? Because um, they're here, and I don't have anywhere for them to live." I'm like, "Um, yeah, sure, man. Just yeah. <laughs> hook it up that I can go riding with them." And and we did that a lot. But yeah, you were taking shots of us at the practice track heaps. But yeah, that was my. I was like, "Yeah, it's gonna be fun," and we were having heaps of fun. I remember we were doing yeah. heaps of cool shoots, and then. I got to the race and I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not glad I got hurt, but I'm glad I didn't get worse hurt because that was the day I was yeah. like, I have no point, no part of being here anymore. Like, this is not fun. This is gnarly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, but... Uh, but yeah, yeah so was, you shot you shot that series, obviously. Um, yeah, and, we, and with OzX, it was, it was something different. As I said, it was... Not that the other events weren't professionally run, but from a media standpoint, they, they had a professional team cover the event so obviously in a tight arena you can't go placing photographers everywhere so they had their their three photographers that were covering both the stands and the and the track and um in hindsight we were lucky enough that we could shoot from the stands which at the time was i was not happy with but in hindsight i probably didn't make the most of that opportunity and i could have made more out of it there was there was a lot stricter on the on the selling of images, I couldn't really sell many images from that, that round. So it was lucky that um, one of my good mates, Ryan Brown, got a late call up to the uh, best trick contest. So I actually went down more than anything to support him. I'd, I'd almost given up on, on going to the event out of uh, spite, which I said in hindsight was stupid. But, um, but yeah, unfortunately, 
a lot of guys in the in the media industry ruined that for us and acted like complete dicks and disrespectful for the, to people in the crowd. And I think a lot of feedback went back to Kudos Bank Arena, which then got forwarded onto the AME crew, and that was the end of it. For the following years, we we couldn't even shoot from the stands, and we couldn't shoot from anywhere. We we get press day, and that was it. Um, yeah, I mean, and that arena was so small at the time. Like they were, you know, they had to. I think that, like you said, some of the events are a bit more free for all, and the AME guys run a tight ship. They run a great event, so yeah. they just made sure that there was zero liability on too many bodies on the floor, as far as photographers or yeah, you know, they they run a and tight model. You know, it it works. Unless unless you've been in that scene and and know and you know, I I shot Supercross for a few years because I kind of knew the ins and outs where if a rider was going to come off the track, where they'd come off the track. So I knew, I knew where I should and shouldn't be. But even an arena like that, like there was next to no room about the outside. They used every square yeah, inch every, they could. Every inch of track was of it. And talk about that, Jonesy. So, you you know, you've had more than your fair share of crashes. You know, you know what's up when a bike's going to cartwheel and where it's going to go. Um, have you had any close calls? Have you ever been collected? Yeah, so Brisbane <laughs> yes. Supercross in 2014. Yeah. Um, I, again, greener as it comes, greener than a fresh cowie, was standing on the backside <laughs> of the triple shooting. It was a, a triple into a right-hander, and I was shooting the, the guys out of the out of landing into the corner. And Kate Mosey came over the jump and got a little squarely on the up ramp and clipped my arm on the way down and, Luckily, he didn't hit me hard, and I, I didn't get hurt. But it was like, holy shit! Yeah, this is and I real. Remember that I can night. I can get hit. Yeah, yeah. On the same the same jump, I remember one of the flaggies got landed on. You know, it was just got squarely. I think two riders came together in the just before the up ramp, and one guy sent it wide. And again, you're in a tight arena; you don't have that space. So he sends it, landed on a flaggie. I'm pretty sure he went to hospital with broken bones so jeez yeah i mean it's real you know insurance and i think this is probably the one side of the business that people don't see like you know even even myself doing um you know obviously i do tv at mxn i do commentary at supercross as far as like the venue stuff i'm on the floor you know i, I work with you know pr and all that everyone knows that but you know i have um motorcycle in Australia um, media insurance you know I can't remember what the yep. policy is called but I'm sure you have it too but um, yep. you know you know that covers you um, as far as just liability of someone just completely getting whiskied out of control you don't know it's coming you get cleaned out like that's a real risk for a promoter and the governing bodies that there's people on the floor that can get really hurt you know yeah and I, I mean I've always had my insurance and that was one thing Kev always said you know you need to have public liability so I've spent you know four figures every year for the past four years making sure that I'm I'm covered out there both from a public liability point of view and a gear point of view. Well, a lot of promoters yeah. won't even let you on the track without it, you know? Yeah, and, and that's how it is. And I know MA's brought out their media license now, which covers you, but even then, you, you, you don't know what could happen and you, you've just got to cover your ass these days. It's just things happen, mistakes happen, and it, it might not be, you know, something that, you do on purpose or it might be something that you just didn't even think would happen and it happens and you, you just you've just got to be covered and make sure that in the end run if anything does happen you're covered the rider's covered 
and the promoters covered. I mean, that's what they want to see as well. The last thing they want is lawsuits coming out of their ass because some guys hit me and wants money out of me and then I'm arguing that it wasn't my fault. Yeah, you know, like you said, it's just it something you, you want to you want to avoid it at, at all possibilities. But um, yeah, that's that's then, always something that I've because I've nearly been cleaned out plenty of times commentating. You know, especially at Supercross, like you got your back to typically with Supercross commentary, we stand on the start line because once the gate drops, that's the only part of the track that doesn't get used. But normally, the Supercross start line is backing onto a set of whoops, a rhythm section, a block pass bum, and and you're commentating yeah. and you know just at Wollongong this year I was commentating and a few times like you remember how wild that turn was after the finish jump yeah. and it just they were drifting all the way out battling into that wall jump and yeah. like a few times I got filled in that hard and, and you know when you hear that you feel that 450 exhaust hit you in the face and you're like okay wow I'm a little too close right now <laughs> you know what I mean yeah and I remember at Coolum one year final round and um, it was in the MX2 class and I, I just shot the first corner, and I wanted to run to the inside of the track, but it was it was back when the, they, the track that, they was doing that itself. double first turn thing where it, it kinked back around. No, it was it was when it went around, it kind of just railed the outside burn onto the, the long straight, mm. oh, and then right, it, yeah. it ended up they ended up coming back towards us, and um, I thought I'll just wait till everyone passes. So I'm watching all the riders come through. Um, last rider comes through, I have a look. Yep, no one's coming. So I start running up the back of this berm, the high side of myself, end up on the inside rut, and then I look up and there's Jaden Rikers just on his bike staring at me in the middle of the rut like, what are you doing, you idiot? Get out of the way. And I was like, oh, shit. I remember this text like straight away, just texted him and said, yeah, look, my bad on that one, dude. I didn't really see you coming. Uh, and he'd had a crash in one of the first few corners and he was miles behind, but by the time I'd picked myself up and dusted the sand off and realised he was right there. It was probably a bit too late, but it was all good. I mean, Things that's what people, like that. they don't understand. Like, it's it's a living, breathing environment, the, the track. It's always changing and, yeah. you know, you think you're safe because the group's gone through, but you can't always account for that guy that went down or that bike cartwheeling. But, I mean, anyway, it's just gnarly that, that you know, if you've yeah. – being a rider is one thing, but when you start coaching or doing media and you're actually on, on the track – and the race is going on. That that's a completely different thing that not a lot of people experience. But um, anyway, so the one one more thing I want to talk about before we get to like the present day is um, you were going so hard in 2016 that I was just like Jonesy, I'm doing this trip to the states. I'm taking my junior team over there, and um, we're doing a, a training camp. Um, I was like, I don't have any money to pay you, <laughs> but um, I basically said get there and I'll, I'll cover, you know, your accommodation and everything and your car yeah. and whatnot. And, and I was like, there's no way Jones is going to go for this. And you were like, hell yeah, I'm down to go to the States. And I was like, awesome. Like, yeah, I don't even think, I don't even think I'd let you finish the sentence. And I was just like, yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm all about it. You I'm were just, there. you were just there. So, you know, next just, minute, yeah. like I flew out a few days early and then, um, I pick you up at LAX and, and, and that was, that was a fun trip, man. Yeah. And I mean, the, the guys we went with, like I knew, I knew yourself and uh, I'd seen the, the riders and, and the dads at the track, but I didn't I didn't really know them. They didn't know me. So for like the first day, they got, they got professional, professional Mark. <laughs> and then I think by day two, they realized- Uncle Buck was in town, yeah. Uncle Buck was there and I was one of the funniest dudes I'd ever met and, and just- <laughs> 
made made light of absolutely everything and everything I could. And oh man, that that trip was. I mean, for you on a photography level, we'll get to that. You got to shoot some really cool stuff, but just just the little stuff every every night. Just uh, you know, getting through a bottle of Maker's Mark at the at the race SoCal Ranch where we were staying and. Um, the uh, you the eat Del Taco f- at ten o'clock at night. Yeah, you eating foot long subs at freaking seven a.m. on the way to the track every day. <laughs> I remember the hot dog I got, like a foot long hot dog from the servo, from the AM PM servo, and it was oh yeah. You, you, oh, and the McRibs, you just had that McRib thing going on. Oh. You eating McRibs several times yeah, a day from McDonald's. Yeah, so I remember we got from the airport and we drove into uh, Murrieta and we just went to this dodgy looking Mexican joint yeah it was, like, oh because you got there on um, Thanksgiving so there was like nowhere open there was some Mexican joints open and that was it it was it was pretty gnarly gnarly to just going to a place like that and then I remember seeing the McRib and I'm pretty sure I smashed the burrito and then we went straight to Mac's drive through and I got a McRib because <laughs> I was like oh my god they've got McRibs in the States this yeah the McRibs experience. never left um, do you remember uh, the Hollywood Hills yeah and there's no car parks to be seen. Like there's people driving up and down, just you know, telling you turn around. You're not going to get a car park. And then there was just that spot on the side of the hill that <laughs> you you probably would maybe consider it if you had a fully kitted out four wheel drive with a lift kit. And here we were in the uh, the F three fifty. Oh, it was the Chevy? Was. Yeah, the Chevy van with seats in it. Oh, man, no seat belts, and it was gnarly. And then. You just were like, no, nah, I don't give a shit. I'm parking here. <laughs> and I remember just like nearly being vertical up this hill. And you were just like, I've got this. And everyone's just giggling. But they weren't laughing at the situation. I think they were more laughing at the fear of death and whether or not we were going <laughs> to yeah. make it out of line. Oh, and then oh, we got that park and it was just like, it was arguably one of the biggest highlights of the trip. Like, oh, my God. Yeah, that we'll whole, never ever ever in our life do that again yeah yeah that whole I, I didn't realize how gnarly it was until i looked like i was at the front of the van driving it and it was considerably higher than the rest of the van when i looked back at you guys holding on and i was like "Ooh, might have uh, outstretched my ability to drive here but we pulled it off but yeah here i am in the back yeah. seat the, uh, the, the, the statistics didn't really uh favor my my <laughs> life at that time but i was i was committed to the committed to the spot and yeah we got there in the end but but yeah, yeah, that was that was, that was a fun a trip. That was a fun trip, man. And um, and then and you were obviously you did some shooting for us, but then you teed up a lot of your own stuff. You went and shot with um, Jared McNeil, yeah. and then you ended up doing some paid work over there too, right? Yeah. So um, I remember we we kind of had a schedule put in place, but it was kind of a little bit tentative because we we're doing our own thing. We could go to wherever, and that's when I was hitting up my buddy. Uh, Blake McCarthy and I was like hey where are the guys riding at the time he was a practice mechanic for Bogle and he's kind of like yeah pro days here here and here and I remember trying to convince everyone that, that that's where we wanted to go pretty much for my own good and I remember the first day we rocked up at Elsinore and we pulled up next to Cooper Webb and got out of the car and he's just like hey guys how's it going and I remember that year he'd been at OzX and had that big ball security guard that you couldn't come within 10 foot of and so you couldn't even look at him without copping eyeballs or yeah, yeah, feeling like you're going to die. And then all of a sudden he's just sitting on the back of his ute, you know, talking to us and that. It was like, holy shit, this is this is America. And I remember chatting to Blake and he's like, oh, you know, 
back then it was uh, Brock Tickle and Justin Bogle. That was when RCH yeah. were downsizing. Yeah. yeah. Um, Blake, was Blake's cool dude. To I used to talk to him today on Instagram, actually, Blake. He's, he's, a, he's a cool guy. Yeah, so, um, so I was hanging out with those guys, went out on track, and I think back then it was with Millsaps and Millsaps was killing at the time, Webb. Dude, how crazy um, was because I reckon we caught the very end of the the cow the California Supercross like dream because yeah there were all them tracks still open back then and it seems like since yeah, milestone yeah we were everywhere we went there was um it was pro day like every time we went yeah. to the track you know Glen Helen yeah the 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 Cowie you know pro circuit track and then we were at um milestone Pilot, like everywhere had Supercross tracks um yeah now it doesn't seem that way yeah and so. It was yeah. We probably did catch the end, but it was it was just a good experience just to see the riders at that level, and it was it it was really no different from Australia as far as what I could do, and that's I I had access to do what I want on the tracks, and just the images I could get out just really helped propel me at that time. I mean, there's only so much people on social media want to see of your local riders of a a Dean Ferris, a Kurt Gibbs, Todd Waters before they get bored of it and, and yeah. want to see something cool but you put a photo of Cooper Webb up and it's just like oh my god yeah your Instagram during that trip right, I remember right, right. it blew up remember like I just remember crazy. we'd be sitting there just drinking whiskey at night because I was injured at this point I really wasn't much good I, I tried riding I remember but it was very difficult but um, I was just coaching and hanging out and yeah we just sit there at night hanging out at the restaurants or whatever we were doing and your Instagram would just be lit up all night long yeah yeah people because where People is your Instagram really at now? You got a lot of followers, right? Yeah, over over forty thousand ish, yeah. something like that. Not bad. I mean, it's all good. It doesn't pay the bills. I can sit there with a million and you don't have, have a, the same story. You they, don't have they, an OnlyFans account. They don't have what? Sorry, you don't have an OnlyFans account. An OnlyFans account? Yeah, you don't know what that is. No. So it's wow! I, I can't believe I'm going to educate you on this. So that's how all the Instagram chicks make money. Like, oh, is that what you call it? Yeah, they, they, yeah, they, no, they have like a there's like this app called OnlyFans or something. Or I, I I think this is how it works. I yeah, kind of right. I'm into the influencer thing. I do some marketing work, as you all know. And basically, yeah. you can you do a subscription service where you pay, you know, five bucks, ten bucks a month, or whatever they set their tiers at. And then you get access to private, you know, um, content, should we say. Um, yeah, right. So you could have an OnlyFans account, you know, you might be able to make some money. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. And if anyone out there wants to help me promote their bronzer or their their uh, sunscreen or something, I'm always good. I'm, I'm needing a tan or needing to keep out of the sun. So if anyone wants to sponsor <laughs> me and do a sponsored post, I'm, I'm definitely available for it. But anyway, I keep interrupting you. So you go back to it. Um, yeah, so... So in the States, I mean, I I didn't have anything planned besides what you'd done, but what when we got there, obviously, Cookie Brewster, day two. <laughs> oh, didn't he? Broke his shoulder. Yeah. Collarbone or whatever he did, he cooked it at, uh, um, at Cahir Creek. And so that kind of derailed that a little bit. So I kind of had a bit of time, and I remember um, I tried to tie up a few things, and I'd been mates with Jared McNeil for a few years and caught up with him in Australia and I kind of hit him up and said, hey, I'm in the States. If if you're free and, and want to do something, we should catch up. So I caught up with him and did some stuff. I'd 
I hired a little skid pig, which I'll get into soon. Oh, the skid um, pig. Oh, yes. And then I, I hit up Dan Reed and he just signed with Star Yamaha back then. Oh, that's right. That was the um, year Reardon did his fill-in deal, wasn't it? Yep. So he, he was over there at the time. So I'd hit him up and said, hey, man, any chance I can get down? He's like, yeah, I'm riding at the, the, the Yamaha factory test track on the factory hill. And that was crazy. I mean, I, I went there and I've never had so many guys look at me like, why they wanted to kill me, and yeah. I was just like, "Here I am in this, what I call a decent micro in Australian terms, the the most chickiest chick car you could find with the manliest of men driving it." Yeah, yeah, I remember. And this big hairy dude hops out with a big cheesy <laughs> smile because he's just living the dream, and everyone's just like, "What the hell?" And then I went over and saw Dan, and then I remember this guy. I can't remember who it was at the time, but pretty much gave me all these rules and pretty much said. If I catch you taking a photo that isn't Dan, I will kill you. And I was just like, whoa. Because I think at the time, Flessinger was there and Webb were there and they were both having issues with gear that they were um, getting paid to wear. So I think someone was wearing boots they weren't meant to wear. Someone was wearing a helmet they weren't meant to wear just because of comfort reasons and whatever. Yeah, so it was like so if any like, of these... If you take get- an image and put it out, we will come after you. And I was... Pretty shit to get at the time, but I, I did my thing. I just, I just shot the photos of, of Dan. That's what I was there for, anyway. You know, I was just happy to be there, dude. And, on, um, a, on a segue, real quick, I got a crazy story that I just remembered. Um, so back in, dude, going way back, I was in Cali in 07, right? That's when I was training over there for a little bit um, when I lived in the yeah. UK, and we, I'm pretty sure it would have been the same Chevy van that we were driving around. We took that, um, and we just used to drive up to the test tracks and sit on the hill and watch. Um, you know, you could park up on the hill back then and just look down on all the tracks. If you've never been to the test tracks in California, it's really hard to explain, but they're all on one block of land on a hill. Like, it's really bizarre, isn't it? But all staggered up the hill, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of that cut into, like, levels on the hill. And if you go to the top, you can kind of see all of them. So we do that, like, once a week because we were just, like, stoked to be watching. And I remember sometimes we'd be fine. And then we went up to the top where the Suzuki test track was and, and Carmichael was wearing a, a Liat. He was testing a Liat, dude. Um, yeah. And the Suzuki guys, like Ricky was waving at us, telling us to leave. He was rolling around the track and the Suzuki guys were like, yeah, you know, you got to go, get out of here. And honestly, I don't even think we knew what a Liat was back then, but it was before it was like, yeah. you know, production. But anyway, so yeah, a lot of crazy shit goes down. They don't want media seeing at those tracks. So you'd have been getting the hard word from Yamaha. Yeah, and I mean, unless you unless you're in like all those those media agencies in the in the states and that they they make that call. Hey, I want to come out to the test rack and shoot this for the website or magazine, and you know they're prepared. You know the the, the riders are told this is what you're going to wear. You're going to wear this gear, this helmet, these boots, these coloured gloves, and you're going to do what you need to do to get this shot. Because I mean, for them, it's all about promotion and, and getting the team promoted, whether it's the manufacturer or the the goggle brand, the gear brand, and when I came, it was not unexpected. I'm pretty sure Dan had hit them up, but in saying that, they didn't really want me there. Mm. But again, I wasn't. I wasn't running. I was taking advantage of that situation, no matter what. Yeah, it was. Um, it was cool. I mean, you got shots of Red, and I just remember, like I said, you were getting shots of all the top pro guys, and you got that shot yeah. of Bogle. And what was the energy drink that they ended up paying you for it? Yeah. So when I was over there. Um, Bogle hit me up and said, hey, my, I'm getting sponsored by this new energy drink brand. It was a Pepsi brand, I think it was called um, 
Rogue or X Rogue or something like that. That's right. I remember. And he said, I, 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 um, I, they want to buy an image to use for, um, for their brand. And I said, Oh, yeah, cool. Just, you know, hit him up. I was, I was pretty stoked that he didn't just flick him off an image like most guys do. Yeah. Yeah. So, we'll um, get into that in a minute. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember talking, talking to the guy and he couldn't understand a word I was saying. You'd swear I was speaking another language. And I was like, Sorry, dude. I'm from Australia, and he's like, "You're in Australia now." I'm like, "No, no, no. I'm I'm in the states at the moment. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in California, I'm mate. I'm <laughs> from Australia. Like, I, I, I don't live here full time, and that. And then that opened another can of worms, and I ended up getting more more money for that photo that they paid for my trip two times over, and I still had. Yeah, I remember you threw out a crazy figure, and they just went for it, and and we were all just like, "Wow." Yeah. Well, the the, the guy said to me, he said, "I, I we're." putting this drink into service stations or gas stations over there. Um, and on every fridge is going to be your photo next to a bottle of the drink with of Bogle. Mm. And I said, well, you know, that shit ain't cheap. And he goes, yeah, no, that's fine. Tell us what it is. And I, I referenced uh, Getty Images prices back then and I gave him a price and he was like, yeah, no, that sounds sweet. And I just, I mean, it was into the thousands of dollars in America and I was just like, holy shit. <laughs> I remember I was it was... And then he's like, oh, yeah, just give us your address and I'll send you a check. And I'm just like, a check? Yeah, they don't do yeah, transfers they over there. No. No. And I remember I ended up having a PayPal it and some random dude at Pepsi had a PayPal account. So they had to pay him and then he paid me. And I mean, it all went down sweet and that in the end and – it's funny though, isn't it? Like, you know, they go, oh, it's a, you know, I do this to get a paycheck, but it's actually a, a check from back in the day. That's how they still use yeah. the banking system in America. It's crazy. Yeah. And I mean, I had no way of cashing it over there. And then I was like, I don't even know if I can cash in Australia. And I'm like, I don't want to be flying with more money than I've ever earned on paper just to another back home to Australia. What if I lose it or anything like that? Like, you can't just call up and be like, yo, yo, need more money. All that money. Yeah. Someone else has it now. I need it back. <laughs> but yeah, yeah no, that, that, that was good. That was good cool. with that. That kind of boosted my confidence a little bit. And we went down to Milestone. I remember that day and it, it absolutely flogged down. It was raining the night before and it was borderline underwater. And that, that was when the Geico test track was down there. That's and right. Jimmy yeah. Dakotas was. Um, yeah, you just went up and talked to Jimmy. There. I remember because yeah. you just had. Yeah, you had some. Yeah, well, I'd known Jimmy from. Uh, when he rode in Australia and that, and I said, oh, you know, do you reckon I could come take some shots? And Michael Rocco was the, the team manager back then. And like all the fellow American industry counterparts, I got stared down like I was there for every wrong reason. And he said, yeah, you can get out in the track, just don't get in the way. And I remember it was uh, Jimmy, John Smith, and Jeremy Martin. Yeah, they were doing that think, whole um – that whole race day thing too. They were racing. Do you remember? Yeah. It was, and I remember Jeremy Martin was just like scraping foot pegs on flat turns, but going faster than I've ever seen anyone on a motorbike go in their life. Just it wasn't it ridiculous that speed. how he, fast he was going that day. He he was making Jimmy and and Jordan Smith look like because Christian, like, Christian Craig was there too. I remember now. Was Chris, oh, I can't remember Christian Craig being there, but yeah, he, yeah. He, we would have been there too. He was there. It was all four of them, and they were doing that whole preseason thing the Geico team yeah. used to do where they would see who was going on what coast. And you were shooting yeah. photos. I was just watching from the side of the track, yeah. and it was just these guys were 
going seriously. I've yeah. never seen anyone go that fast around a supercross track as Jeremy nah, Martin that day. Nah. Yeah, that, and I think that was probably his first year at Geico, I believe. Yeah, he'd left Star the year uh, before. Yeah, yeah. So um, that year, because yeah, he was going to start seventeen with Honda. I remember. Yeah, so he was kind of fighting for his spot and that trying to make a name for himself. I don't think he'd really done much in the Supercross scene. I think he'd had a bit of a breakout year in motocross. So for him, it was kind of a, a learning curve. But yeah, he was killing it that day. But Yeah, that whole yeah, uh, But yeah, look, look, this is doing what I thought it would, Jonesy. It's going pretty long because you and I can just talk underwater. But that was a rad trip. You, you got a lot of cool shots. Your Instagram blew up and you put yourself out there and um, – that was rad to see. So, you know, since then, you know, 17, 18, um, geez, what are we at? 20. You, you shot for Moto Online. You've shot for MCN. Um, you've shot for a lot of major brands in the industry. Um, you know, it, it's definitely um, at a point where it's, like you said, it's not a full-time job, but I, I know that it's part of your your business model at this point between work and photography and you're able to, to have a pretty decent lifestyle for yourself from that. Um and it's cool to see, you know, you've carved out um, a reputation as being one of the more premier established photographers in the industry. And um, I guess just talking about everything that we've talked about so far from where you were to where you've gotten to, um, it's really cool to see. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's all been hard work and, and, and guys come through and, and I see a lot of people out there today, whether or not they're young or, or old, come and try and make it in the moto scene and, they pretty much they think they're going to step into an established business, and it it, it takes time. It takes years. Like I said, it it cost me a fortune to to go around and shoot the series back when I wasn't making money, but I had to do something to get my name out there. And I wasn't sending out free images to everyone trying to make pals because it, it wasn't who I was. I was just there. I gave my images to Verb, I gave them to Vital, and put my stuff on my social media. And I just, I grab the attention of brands out there and establish relationships that to today I can still fall back on. And I, I spent the last couple of years working for Foremost Media and, and Moto Online and um, all of my clients there, I took over to those brands. And um, coming into the start of this year, we kind of had a, a bit of a deal lined up. But with the way the industry's going and the, and the way, especially now, everything's going down, um, Basically, I got let off from that position, and that was just from a financial standpoint. It wasn't wasn't feasible, and I was lucky that the relationships I built through the years, I was able to contact those people and say, "Hey, you know, I'm, I'm back on my own again. Did you want to work together?" and and that's really helped me. And, and leading into the nationals before everything went down, I'd I'd managed to get myself enough work to get to a financial standpoint that. I was making good money at each round, paying for travel. I was flying around. So I wasn't having to drive. I could I could stay in a in a nice Airbnb house with people, and I, I didn't have to worry about money. And that's just through the relationships I've built over those years. And it, it's the little things that I did to keep them happy. And I think in the end run, that's what's paid off for me. And, well, and, and I think the common theme is that. You know, you've you've done the hard yards. You've invested in yourself long before it was you're going to see a return because you had a vision, you had belief, and you know I think you were part of that little group of of us that were just hustling the industry to get through and get to the next event and grow, you know, grow our brands and um, yeah. you know, going back to to where it started to where it is now. Like like you said, even though things haven't worked out, say with with foremost the Moto Online for this year, 
you know, your reputation in the industry and the brands you've worked with before, you know, they're going to cut you, they're going to cut you whatever you need to make it work for them. And, um, yeah, it, that's where that hard work and that rep, you know, pays off. So that was going to be one of my questions was, you know, what would, first of all, I've got two questions, but the first one would be, you know, aspiring because content creator, I, I despise that word by the way. Um, yeah. But that's a real buzzword right now on the internet. Like, and people say to me, like, "Oh, you know, you do, um, you know, you're a content guy, right?" I'm like, "No, no, 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 I don't. I'm not. You know, like, I work in marketing. I work with brands. We do digital marketing. Um, I don't, I don't do images. I don't do video. Like, I, I hire guys like you to do that, Jonesy, because that's what you're good at. Yeah. But you know, any, um, anyone and anyone on social media nowadays considers themselves a photographer or a content creator." Um, what what would your advice be to someone that not wants to be perceived as a guy that can do content and images and, and create you know valuable assets to a brand, but someone that actually wants to eventually see a financial return in, in the industry from it? What, what's your advice to them? I mean, it, it's it's the basic things that everyone goes through. You know, working hard, um, working towards an end goal, setting goals. I mean, it, it's one thing to say, you know. I'm going to go out and I'm just going to shoot a heap of photos today, and I think that's where a lot of a lot of people that try and get into the industry are misconceived. They they go home with three thousand photos on their camera because they've just point and, and and shot anything that came in front of them. There's no thought involved with the images, and and even then, on race day, you've you're in the moment. Like you know, you've got thirty minutes to shoot shoot those top guys, get those photos that people need, and there's no point to sending him 20 shots of, of Ferris going around a left-hand bend because they're only going to post one of those images. So it's being able to, to know the track. And, I mean, I don't necessarily study the track. I know most of the tracks around the country pretty well, especially on the national, national circuit. But I know what shots people want. And I, I put that thought into the shot, you know. Brands like McLeod's that I work for, I think they want, they want that M2R shot. So they want... Medi with the M2R down the side, or they want Medi from behind with the, with the helmet where it says Medi and M2R. They want those shots that they can relate to, and it's about finding those shots. If I just went and shot every angle of Brett Metcalf that I saw him on the track, there'd be a whole lot of the useless content that they can't use. And I agree yeah. with that. I'll, I'll jump in on that because you know part of my media role with um, with MX Nationals now, and, and and a lot of the brands that we represent, you know, we hire obviously different photographers to facilitate different needs for different brands. But that's one of the biggest things I've noticed with um, event photography is some, some of the the guys that I work with, you know, they'll come to the event and um, you look at their early stuff from the day and I'm like, dude, that's a sick photo of that rider scrubbing or hitting that rut. But I need an event photo. There's no crowd. There's no signage. I can't see. There's nothing. There's nothing. It might as well be a shot of him riding at his home track, you know? And it's like, there's event photography and branded photography where we're trying to show a a return on investment to to our partners or the brand I'm representing or whatever it might be. And, And it's the same for you. You represent a brand. They need to see a return on the investment of the sponsorship and you shooting for them. And that image reflects that. So I agree. That's definitely probably one of the most underrated things that you'd think would be pretty common sense, but it really is a learning curve when you start shooting photography for branding and and for a specific market, you know? Yeah, and I I think there's a lot of people out there that are kind of new to the industry and they're shooting shooting nice, sharp, clean images. And, you know, if 
you were showing your parents or showing your mates, they'd say, hey, that's really cool. Or if you were down a local track, you made it love that. But when you go into send a photo to Yamaha and, you know, Mel Ross is round this corner and it's a, it's a real nice shot of him and there's a massive KDM banner in the background, <laughs> you ain't ever going to see that image through the daylight. Like, no one at Yamaha is going to want to see that, you know? And no. It's things like that. And that's, for me, that's that's something that I learned from Jeff Crow, not that he would teach me that, but just from studying the imagery he, he put out, that was the things that he looked at. And, and from his years of, of experience in, in the event photography, it's those one percenters that are different between making it and not making an industry. Just because you can take a clean image, you know, that's in focus doesn't mean you're a good photographer. This means you, you no. took a good image. And you got to provide age, value to those brands through your content, you know. Yeah, yeah. And a, and a perfect example is even with team photo shoots, I get a lot of riders come out and they throw these big pancake whips and I get awesome shots of the sump plug and it's like, okay, now what are you selling from this image, you know? Yeah, you know, yeah exactly. Your you, manufacturer is not going to sell it because there's no there's no color on the bike. You see a little bit of a muddy uh, rear fender or front fender and then some tires and a sump plug. You can't see the, the rider's gear. You can't see their helmet. You can't see their number. You don't even know who it is, like, but people are like, yeah, it's a sick whip. And don't get me wrong, it might be a great whip, but it's not going to be selling bikes. It's not going to sell gear. That's not what they're there for. And it's, it's things like that that I feel people coming through don't understand, you know. There's and, a lot more yeah. than taking a sharp image or what they deem as a, a cool image as such. That's not necessarily what brands and manufacturers want to see. And that's the hard part too, because like I'll, like I said, I'm not a photographer, I'm not a videographer. I, I feel like I'm a good director. Like I've, I've produced a lot of content, at, which has got me to where I am now as far as running a media company that that does content for brands. Um, but you, you're you're a little different, Jonesy. You're pretty um, independent as far as you don't even really need a brief. You're that experienced with it. But like a lot of media type guys, especially the youngsters. They're a little eccentric. They're a little art, you know, arty. I don't know how to explain it. Like they've got the eye for, for creativity, but they're not always, um, they have what they think looks good. Not, you know, like you said, it's not common sense to think, hey, I'm shooting for a brand. A lot of them, are, and I've had photographers and videographers where I'm like, dude, I'm not going to use you again because I've briefed you. I've said what I want. I want you to put your own creative flair on it. But at the same time, I need something I can deliver to this brand that's paying for this shoot, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and they, like they just don't get it. And not so much in Australia, but you look in, in the States and that, you know, some of those brands have got million-dollar budgets, you know, for, for marketing and that. They just want a nice, clean image that's going to sell their product. If they want to put some fancy edit on it, if they want to cut the rider out and and do something, you know, cool with it, that's at their discretion. They don't want you to do that for them. They want a nice, clean image that they can work with, that they can use to sell their product. And I think that's what people today get lost up in that moment of trying to trying to get that poster shot and they try and do their own little flair to it. But in event photography, you know, I'm looking to put out a few hundred images for the day across every manufacturer. Last year, the last few years, pretty much every brand and every manufacturer in the industry we're using my images so I've got to cover every rider I haven't got time to put fancy edits and 
make make photos look like something they're not. They just want nice, clean images that they can work with. And again, that that comes down to to knowing what what people want and making the most of your time. And I mean, like a typical day for me at the nationals, I'm there at six o'clock in the morning. I'm I'm there before most riders, getting early shots of the track, trying to get a, a sunrise shot of the track, get the the first light on the bikes coming through the pits, and then before the before practice even started, those shots are already up on a Dropbox folder for every client to see. And then practice qualifying comes out, and you you've got a twenty minute break between the the last of the qualifying and the the first MX two race, and in that time, I'm back on my laptop getting every single image that I can onto a Dropbox folder. So when a brand opens that folder and says, you know, excited for my rider, whoever to wear this this gear safe for the day, they're looking good in this gear, that photo is there for them. They're not using one from the round before or something like that. And again, lunchtime, I, I don't get lunch. I I get back to the, the MXN truck. I'm getting those images processed out and then – at the end of the day, I take those podium shots by five o'clock. My work's done, and I mean it's it's been nearly twelve hours of solid work without stopping. But yeah, you, you, that's what you guys you do. That's what uh, separates. Yeah, that's what separates the people out there. And the same thing happened with uh, with Supercross. You know, um, there was a, a couple of young guys shooting Supercross and that, and they spent most of the interval breaks chatting to me while I was working away on my computer. And I remember one. One guy said to me in the night, he's like, shit, I'm going to be up to like 3 a.m. processing all these images. And I'm like, oh, that's sweet. I'm done. Like, yeah. I've worked my ass off all day to get to this point so I can head back to a, a hotel and sleep. Like, that's that's where that's where you've got to be if, if you're not getting those images out. And I mean, on that, I, I was putting out images of the fastest, the fastest uh, qualifiers, the race winners, the top yummy riders, all carry riders. Like last year, I had to have them out as the race was finished or before the end of the race, you know, to match to match that quality of, of guys like Cudby in the States with the turnaround time. And I had no choice on that. That was part of my job. But if I didn't use my time effective enough, I, I wouldn't have been able to, to put out that kind of content in the time I did. You know, so that's where, where hard work and time management and just, just planning out each shot comes in handy because if, if you don't make use of that time and you fall back once you once you're a little bit behind your your whole day's done yeah and, and it, i don't up. think people want and that's what like i think that's what we're getting at right like event photography branded photography you know shooting for press releases shooting for manufacturer launches gear launches whatever whatever completely different animal to putting out instagram bangers and i think you know those guys that kill it on on the gram it, it's cool and everything but if if they're salty about never getting an opportunity to, to get a return on that work or, or get an opportunity to shoot for brands within the industry, you got to look at the difference. And I hope looking, yeah. listening to this will help. Now, the second question I had, and we'll finish it up with this because we'll, we can go all, all night long. Um, you don't have to get specific with figures, Jonesy, because that's always a sensitive subject, but the business model of, of event photography, branded photography for manufacturers, gear brands, whatever it is, um, I think a lot of photographers wouldn't be privy to how it works. So, you know, sometimes you're employed by a media company that pays you a set rate to shoot for XYZ brands. You provide the images to the company, the company distributes, and you just get that fee. You're not on anything else, right? You're employed through the agency. Other times 
you have, you know, your own deals like this year where you're going to work with brands across the board and charge your own rates and that and, and make it work. So what, what do those two models look like? Um, and, and, you know, what do you prefer? How does it all work? Yeah. So I've spent the last few years working for Foremost Media, which is, um, Moto Online and Cycle Online. And I, I've covered everything from, uh, the nationals to the road bikes and some enduro in there as well, some uh, AORC. And for that model, I I negotiated pretty much a set round rate. Um, for the MX nationals, I've got a crew of guys that I, I travel with, so I, I set a figure relative to the season and said per round I need X amount. And then from there, I would book my flights and accommodation out of that. If I wanted to stay at the Hilton and spend a thousand bucks on a hotel, I could. If I wanted to slum it out in a tent and pay nothing, I could. That was all up to me and that was something that I negotiated. Other guys I'd worked with, I'd worked with um, Brett Trigdon who was doing the video at the time. He was on a similar deal but um, instead of getting paid extra to cover his flights and accommodation, all his flights and accommodation are paid for in advance. So, he said he's told which flight he's on, which hotel he's at, and I mean, we were never slumming it in, in that sense. We, we were always well looked after in the job we did. We always had nice hotels, nice cars, and and decent flights. We weren't getting on the red eyes and that, but that's just how that worked. And for me, it was I I had the guys I travelled with, and I, I like travelling with them. It, it kind of provides entertainment for the the Saturday and the Sunday travelling. So um, that's that approach that I took with that. But then something like this year or years that I've done in the past, which is a freelancing event. So as an example, I emailed every manufacturer, brand, anything related to the motocross industry earlier in the year, put together a proposal of what I can offer, um, what what images, brands or anyone would expect and, and, the, um, and the rate at which I'd be getting them out and in an effective way throughout the day after qualifying and, and, and heat races and podiums and that. And I, and I put my price on that and the price does vary for obvious reasons. You know, some brands might have 10 riders, other brands might only have two riders. Some teams only have two riders, say, as an example. And there is a fluctuating scale that I worked on, but it's something that I, I, I planned out and obviously you've got your double header rounds and for me, that's twice as much work, but I know as an industry, they don't see a double header as two rounds. They just see it as a race weekend. So again, I'd, I'd, I'd costed that into my price, and I basically said, for me to go to the um, six weekends of racing, I need X amount of dollars um, per round. Had a rough idea of what I was going to get in the way of support from from brands and teams and, and manufacturers, and split that cost up and presented that to everyone I need to. And then from there, um, people can decide whether or not they want to come on board. Um, there's, there's, there's not many people that do what I do in this industry. I mean, there, there, there's guys out there that come and shoot for a manufacturer for one round or step in for a round here and there because they want certain images. But as far as doing the whole series, there's no one out there that, that does it with me. I'm that guy that's there at every round, um, no matter what, to make sure I've got those images. So 
that's just a service you've got to offer. And again, that comes down to the hard work. And yeah, if I let dedication, if I let yeah. someone down, that's that's the end of it. I mean, it's a cutthroat industry. You know, if if you piss one person off, your name will spread. You know, yeah, you I think that's what. You can't deliver on something, and and that's why you've you've got to from the start. You've got to make sure you deliver the best you can, and make sure that what you're giving them is what they want. And 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 back to briefs and that. I mean, I don't get a brief from from brands. You know, I don't get again back to like an M two R example. They don't they don't say, hey, I need this image, this image, this image. They just know that that I'll be able to find the images they need and and put together. And it's up to me to say what do, what images do they need. It's up to me to to go. Oh, that's a fresh set of gear. They're definitely going to want images of that and and try and capture images on the start line again. I've worked with McLeods for the last few years and whenever new fly gear drops, I make sure I'm on that start line getting that fly shot of, uh, of Metcalf and, and the other riders because I know that's what they want. That's what they're going to post. And I know that Monday morning I'm going to open up Instagram and that's going to be my image there of Metcalf on the start line and his new gear. You know, it's, it's understanding what, what people want to make them happy and, and, it's not easy. It, it takes time, and, and people make mistakes. But it's it's just about being prepared and, and understanding the job at hand, not not taking on too much. Yeah, I I think one thing that you you're hitting home over and over again is using initiative and, and backing yourself. And I think a lot of people don't really realize, like a lot of these um, a lot of these import companies or these manufacturers or these brands. They're not. Um, we're not on a global level here in Australia. We don't have dedicated marketing managers. We, you know, a lot of guys wear a lot of hats in the industry. And yep. if you're waiting for that concrete brief and, and that time given to you to be like, hold your hand and say, right, Jonesy, today we need shots of this, this, this. Like, no, they're paying you for your experience, and you're going to fill in the blanks of the information you don't have that you know that's a new gear set. You know they want shots of this or that because you just know you know the industry you know the game yeah. so you can't buy that experience and I guess that's what they pay you for but um yep. yeah even on a on a photo shoot level I've I've never really worked worked with anyone that's said I specifically need these shots I mean uh, I've done the the bike launches for for most brands and and teams and that and you, you just know you need the the side shot of the bike you need the engine the clutch cover oh yep they're running an ignition. They're running these foot pegs. They got tires. You know, you just you just got to know. It's you can't have someone baby you because otherwise, that person could have pretty much done the same job I'm doing for half the price. So, and that's that's where that's where your money aspect comes into as well as you said. They're not paying me to take images. They're paying me for the experience and the knowledge, knowing that I'll essentially be my own director for the shoot. And they'll be able to open that Dropbox and see the images that they want without having to send me an email and say, hey, did you get an image of this? Yeah, they just, I mean, it's expected. Yeah, it's expected at that yeah. point. But um, All right, Jonesy, hey, nearly two hours in. I think we'll wrap this one up at this point. Um, I knew it would go long because we can talk all day long. Like I said, there's a lot of funny stuff that I hope you guys enjoyed listening to this. And um yeah, I just hope it gives, you know, a lot of guys listening to this, uh, industry guys, a lot of writers, but there's also, um, I think, a lot of aspiring kids listen to this that want to get somewhere and, and find their place in the industry and do something cool with it. So, um, yeah, you and I, you know, we came up together, so to speak, and um, 
we're doing our own deals. It's pretty cool to see. So, yeah, it was good to have you on, mate. And um, no, Thanks for having me. No, nah, all good, man. Congratulations on all the stuff you've done so far. And, um, and yeah, we'll, 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 I'm sure we'll work together soon. But, um, all right, guys, that's Mike Jones here on the uh, Inside Dirt Network podcast. Um, like we said, we're just putting out a lot of content right now with um, – you know, with the whole coronavirus thing, the whole year plan, Jonesy, I'm sure you're the same. The year plan right now is completely gone from what we would have had. So I don't even really have a a title for these podcasts I'm putting out right now. They're not part of the show plans that we do. They're not part of the sponsors, anything in between. I'm just putting them out to give you guys content. So um, all all I ask as usual is um, please share it, please comment it, um, please spread the word. You know, a lot of insight in this podcast between Jonesy and I and, um, just get the word out, guys, because hopefully you guys can learn a thing or two or someone you know can learn a thing or two from listening to this. Um, and with that being said, um, Jonesy, I'll give you a call tomorrow, bro. We'll have a chat about um, the post-podcast chat, but I'm going to finish this one up now and probably go to bed because it's pretty late. Um, yeah. So yeah. thanks for the time and, um, yeah, appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. All right, mate. Talk to you soon. Cheers, mate. Bye.